So, you know, I always have much better intentions than I have implementation or execution of those intentions. But um, I guess what I want to really do is, like, I want to talk about um, the transitions into, you know, like, let's see, how do I say this? Transitioning into parenting an adult in and of itself, I'm sure is weird. It's a weird experience probably for every parent, especially parents that are caregivers that are raising children that are difficult or very complex or neurodivergent or um, that have traumas that are adopted that are whatever. Like, it's probably a weird experience for everyone because you genuinely, like, are one day making all of the rules for your kid. And then depending on that kid, like, maybe even more so than other parents, like, you're highly involved and you're what they like to call, like, helicopter, <laughs> a helicopter parent. And then, you know, you're, like, really managing all of the pieces of their life. And then you just have to start, like, transitioning out of that. Um, if you, especially if you don't do it when they're like in their teens, if you're not like slowly giving them the reins and then pulling it back in. And then if you like are too controlled, um, when they're kids and then before you know it, the world tells them they're grown and they can like move out of your house and they start making decisions on their own, whether you like it or not, like then you're in big trouble, I think. So I think it's a weird experience in general, like, <clears throat> I think actually parenting in general is such a weird experience. It's like in hindsight, looking over the last 18 years, I'm just like, I don't know why you don't have to have a license to be a parent. And I'm pretty sure I would never have qualified because I, I, I don't think that like, it's the hardest job ever. I mean, you're literally like trying to prepare a human to become a, a like a, an adult that's going to function in society in a way that like, is positive, powerful, productive, safe, and, you know, upholds the values of your legacy, but you also, like, want to just keep them alive no matter what, and you want to, um, like, make sure that they're thriving, of course, and then all of that is, like, subjective, and then all of that is also, um, there's no guarantees, like, there's not a perfect route to that, uh, you can't actualize that in any format like there's no way to make sure that these these kids whether they're biologically yours or adopted or whatever like there's no real guideline to this parenting thing and especially with rad and trauma based like uh you know trauma based upbringings are like extraordinarily difficult and so for me I'm having a lot of reflection. Uh, I have a lot of moments of awareness and reflection about things I've done right, things I've done wrong. Like, and that's always also ever-changing because what you thought you did right when they were this age, they're like responding to it in a way that's like positive. But then later it turns out that maybe it wasn't so positive. <laughs> so it's a nightmare. Like it's such a, a stressful life when you are, when you choose to be a parent, it's a stressful life. And then when you have multiple kids, I definitely don't know what that's like. So I, I just, I feel like wholly unqualified to talk about um, parenting. Well, probably to talk about anything, let's be honest. Like, who knows? None of this stuff is, I don't think any of this stuff is certain. But I definitely used to. 
And I think that being married to ideas is also part of the problem, especially in the reactive attachment disorder community, because, um, you know, we don't actually know. And that's facts. Like, we don't actually know what is, what the methods, what methods will, will bring a child through tra traumatic upbringings and biological factors. And what will, what will cause their outcomes to change? We don't, there's not like a invariably like specific methodology to taking a child with severe attachment traumas and making sure that they turn out like functional, happy, healthy, you know, uh, members of society. But there are like, there's like propaganda, there's like rhetoric and there's, you know, um, there is a lot of, there's just a lot of things that are, that are wrong with and, and misinformation that are inherent in the community. And then there's so much wrong with the way that society thinks about, um, children in general. And this is, of course, my take on it is my opinion. I mean, from my experience, I do feel like I have some level of expertise in speaking on certain specific things because I've been in the community for so long and I have raised a child that has it and I have a lot of the conditions of my situation would make me feel like I have the right to speak on the matter, but it doesn't actually mean that I'm right, you know? So I feel like an expert, but you can disregard all of my content uh, as expertise because it's probably not. But I, um, what I do know is this, I do know that right now there's a lot of conversation, right? About abortion and adoption, because there are a lot of, um, organizations that are, since Roe Ro v. Wade was overturned, there's a lot of organizations that are going into communities and trying to, um, implement ordinances. And there's just a lot of political conversation from, you know, pro-life and pro-choice, um, advocate groups that are. I feel like they're, you know, kind of on the, on trend right now. Um, you know, they go in and out of the media portrait, but for now I feel, I feel like it's kind of coming back into the scope of conversation and that always brings up, you know, especially on social media there, that always brings up, you know, uh, the alternative to abortion, which is adoption. And that always triggers me because, um, obviously of my life experiences, but I, uh, I did see a post not too long ago in one of the rad groups about um, kids on TikTok. They're like adult adult adoptees, I guess. And these kids are talking about um, their adoptive families in like really hateful ways. I haven't watched them myself um, because it's just like my TikTok is a sacred place of hilarity and like um, lighthearted, fun, loving spider dances and spiders dances and like interesting shit I never considered in my life as well as like geology. So I don't want to, I don't want to change the algorithm. But anyway, uh, the point of that is to say, I, I did comment on it because in my other social medias, uh, I'm always interested in this content. And I read the post and the post was like, I can't watch these adult adoptees anymore on TikTok. They are so hateful and mean and they just spread such negativity and pessimism and like you know i genuinely wanted to ask a question about their experience and they were just so nasty in response to me and and um 
I think that, you know, I commented on that. I'm going to comment on it now and say that this goes back to my, my conversation about parenting being weird. Um, you know, one of the most life-changing moments for me was when I watched this Paul Sunderland video that I'm always sharing and posting and talking about. And it is about adoption and relinquishment trauma. And it just resonated so much at the time because I was really coming into an understanding about attachment because I, I started to frame my understanding of attachment through the loss of my mom. And I started to understand attachment through being attached as a child to my mom. Like I don't have the bond that I suspect a lot of, um, you know, that I suspect that biological parents have to their children, but, but I have the closest thing to that, but I do have that bond with my mom because, you know, I mean, obviously I've talked about it on the podcast before, but, um, so I was kind of starting to understand this, um, during that time, my kid was not living with us at the time she had moved to her dad's and was, you know, I was processing my feelings about all of that. And then I was able to just kind of listen from a different non, I wasn't defensive about it. I was really in a place of coming up with a, a, a deeper understanding of attachment at the time. And it just really, like, I remember crying when I watched it and I just felt like, yes, like this is, this makes so much sense. And so one of the things he says during this time is like, um, I think he's referencing, you know, uh, infant adoption, like in hospital adoption, where the parent, the mom gives the baby up right away. Um, and how he talks about smells and sounds and uh, the food in the culture, the food the mom's been eating and digesting while the baby's in the belly, like, like uh, the sounds of, of, you know, life in those cities and whatever. And um, he talks about how this child has been nine months in the belly, like basically in the womb, waiting to meet their mom. And the only voice they can really hear is their mom. And they respond in all these tests, like um, they show correlation in response to the voice of their mom. Um, they prefer it over any other voice. And the, the foods that their mom, the smells of the foods that their mom eats. And like just all these, these things that start to build um, a, a a sense of belonging for a baby that has yet to even enter the world right like so i think that that is makes so much sense so he says um she's been waiting you know the, the child has been waiting nine months to meet this person that the, that they have been made inside of their body and they are they're waiting for this person to care for them and so they cry and they cry and they are seeking these familiar sounds and you know, they know what this mother, they, they were built by their DNA from the inside of this, this mother's womb. So like, obviously there is some sense of attachment to this person already. And I think it's medically unsound to think that there isn't. To think that you can just rip a baby from the womb of its mother and give it to a family for adoption. I think that's crazy. And I wonder about surrogacy even as well. Um, genetically, yes, the DNA of that child may be yours, but the womb that made the baby was not yours. And that the voice of the woman who carried that baby is not yours. So I think there's maybe going to become, uh, maybe in the future we'll see with all the surrogacy that happens nowadays, that there's an element to that that even causes an attachment disruption of some kind. Um, but yeah, so he, he's talking about how, um, you know, we as adoptive families and we as uh, foster families or 
you know, seeking to adopt families or whatever, that we just tried to integrate this child into a, a life that's already existing and accommodate them. Of course, even with the best of intentions, we're trying to accommodate them and integrate them into a family structure, into a life that they should be grateful to have, especially in a rescue, uh, a rescuing from um, a traumatic environment or a abusive environment. We want them to be grateful. We want them to feel and quickly adjust into this family and, and just show up like this family structure is showing up in the world. And I think it's so, and, and like the protected person is often, it's weird because the most protected person is often the adoptive mother and the most, uh, the most neglected from the inside, from the child and the most abused, I guess you can say, is, is the mother. So it's like, the mom is often expecting the child to integrate into a family or become become her child, integrate into what she's building as a family. And um, we try to eliminate the biological connections when we adopt children that are older. We try to eliminate their desire for their biological parent. We try to we feel so uh, it, like the, the lack of humble, um, gratitude from these children. It's a trigger for a lot of these parents. And it's, it's, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre relationship. Um, and I think that like, until we start looking at it differently and until we start handling our expectations of the world and the children within our families that we're adopting and whatever, until we start handling these relationships and understanding that you're not just adopting this child, you're adopting their family, whether you like it or not, you're adopting their biological um, baggage, their biological parents, their biological uh, diseases and ailments and disorders, and we and the biological um, connection. You're adopting all of that, and if you don't think you are, you're wrong, and and you'll find out. You'll find out that you're wrong. I have never, and I and I have. I could be I could be wrong. I would I would be open to being uh, to seeing evidence of that, but. I have never seen an, an adult adoptee, a child adoptee, I've never seen a child of adoption in any capacity or age range who, who didn't have some level of um, extraordinary um, level of trauma. Now, that's not to say that there are, there are, are families out there that are doing a much better job of, of accepting that and dealing with that, getting the child and keeping the child in therapy and like having conversations that are hard but especially in these families where they get these kids very young, um, or like say the dad and the mom of a child, you know, they maybe they're on drugs and the mom doesn't get clean, the dad does, and then he remarries and now he's got this two-year-old baby and this other woman is raising her as her own. You know, those types of situations where it's like, you know, this woman has sacrificed everything for this child and she's raised this child and as her own, maybe she doesn't have other children, maybe she does. But this child is never like fully integratable, <laughs> like it's never fully integrates into her expectations of a family structure, her ex expectations of her other children. This child's always just kind of been very hard, very difficult. And it's like, yeah, I bet. I bet so. Because the, you're, you are not considering the things that are inherently true about this child's circumstance. You have a child who has trauma and like, okay, you consider that. But you also have a child who has some connection to their mother who y'all don't engage with or you only engage negatively about and, you know, talk hella shit about the mom all the time or 
every time the mom's brought up, it's some kind of a traumatic experience for them. There's an argument or something terrible is said, or the mom, maybe the mom died of a drug overdose. Like there's all kinds of scenarios, right? But ultimately when your parent, especially one that you know on some level that you have some, some memories or experiences with, when your child is removed from the care of that parent and then placed into the care of a woman or, you know, whatever, who is not that parent, but is expected to then pretend, eliminate the memories of the other parent that they are greatly, uh, they are greatly wondering about. They're wondering about them. They're greatly distracted by the memory of them or the concern for them. And like, they have to hold that down as to not offend or stir up drama or remind this woman who's caring for them that they're supposed to be grateful for this care they they know i mean you know as young like you see it in young kids like you don't bring up the biological parent in so many situations like you don't ask for your fucking daddy like don't you know that your uncle's been doing this this and that for you like where the fuck's your daddy he's a you know you just you're triggered and like i get it yeah they're drug addicts and they steal from you and they they didn't, they dumped their kids off. They didn't care. They used their kids to get resources or not even that. Like they let their kids starve. They left them in a house by themselves. And you know, they let the kid get burned. Uh, this is a story I heard not long ago. Like, you know, how the fuck can you miss your dad? Like your dad was so fucked up. He literally, like you have scars for the rest of your life because the, the child fell into a fireplace or something and has like the whole side of its body is like third, third degree burns. And they're, it's covered in scars. And it was like a long healing process and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I lost my job taking care of this child. And, um, you know, his dad never even came to see him in the hospital. He's so strung out on drugs. And, um, you know, how can you care about what your dad is doing? Why, why are we still talking about your dad? Your dad wouldn't let you die. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't even be here today. Da, 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 da. All this, all this shit. It's just like, fuck, imagine, imagine that being your truth. And like, that's the perspective of the parents that are making the sacrifice to care, the caregivers that are making the sacrifice to be the, this child's parent now. And those are valid sacrifices and feelings and all of that, but they are not the truth of the child. And that is not their experience. And they are, the more you say that your dad basically uh, was letting you burn alive and like, uh, if it wasn't for us, you'd be dead and your dad never even came to see in the hospital. Like you are telling a child these things in a moment and a fit of hurt feelings and rage and feeling um, entitled to something from this child. And you're telling them a story that is just making your own circumstances worse because A, they believe you and that is going to fuck them up, that their dad didn't care, which isn't true, that their dad uh, chose drugs over them, which isn't true, that their dad was gonna let them burn to death, which isn't true. That is, these are not things that are true. These are the perspective of a person who is angry and who did the right thing to take care of the child um, when its parent was incapable of doing so in a very traumatic medical, you know, urgent, an urgent medical, you know, crisis. And um, so now you're, you're either convincing a child of the most horrific perspectives that are not true, or they know it's not true because they know their dad and they know like that he's sick or whatever, but they have whatever kind of relationship with him. They have whatever familiarity with him. They love him. They don't want it to be true. And so they are now going to start to, to project that back to you. Like the way that you speak about their dad, the way that you speak to them and yell at them when they're just crying because they miss their dad or whatever. We naturally have a disdain as people 
for for the people that it's this like that age old adage about like like yeah I mean I can talk shit about her but I dare somebody else to talk shit about her or you know you know how it is like you got to remember these things like if somebody said that about your imperfect parent whose imperfections may be less dangerous whose imperfections may be not um, on the same level of this child's parents' imperfections, but you know your parent has very shitty things. And if you look back, especially for older parents and their, you know, older caregivers when their parents were caregiving for them, like you know that your parents did fucked up things, shitty things, crazy things, things that were not healthy, happy, uh, productive for you as a child. But if somebody started just going off about how how much of a piece of shit your parent was, you would be pissed. You would not have the same respect for that person. You do not want to have these conversations, be them true or not. You do not want anyone to be aggressive and, uh, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, be aggressive in their, um, in their assessment or their audit of your parent. You don't want them to talk shit about your parent in a way that is just like, because it, it, it feels like it's a piece of you and it feels like it's maybe because of you. And it feels like it's, um, it is a truth that you don't want to, it's not the framing that you would, that anybody would choose when they're talking about how their parents parented them, treated them, lost them, or what they've done after something traumatic happened, like a, the, a removal. They don't want, nobody wants that framework to look like your dad was going to let you burn to death. Your dad never came to see you in the hospital because obviously all of that is comma because he doesn't love you because he doesn't want you because he doesn't care about you, because he could give a fuck less about your life. Like nobody on the planet wants the people that biologically contributed to their making as a person in this world to have parents that feel that way about them or that would do those things to them. Who ever thinks that it's a good idea to vent to your child about the truth of their biological experiences or parents or their, the way that their biological parents raised them or how they lost them. You don't ever want to do that. And I made that mistake. I mean, I still make it, I'm sure. You know, I'd still make it if I went back in time, I'm sure. But the truth of that is, is like, if you think you're getting an ally in the fight against my biological parent, like, it's not happening. And the further that that delves into your feelings of rejection and hurt feelings and sacrifice and all the things that go along with that, the further that you tap into that in front of that child and the deeper that anger and that, um, you know, just, just feeling slighted, that inequity between you and this child and the biological parent will be, it will, it will just grow the fucking gap. The gap will just widen. And, um, <clears throat> I, I strongly suggest you you work on yourself and that's really where the advice comes in on this topic because you have to understand and if you don't have a very close relationship to your own biological parents or one that has been um if you don't have an attachment yourself to your own biological parent you're not going to you may it may be a hard thing for you to understand especially if your child is extra uh, distracted and concerned with their biological parent. Like if they're very much so like I was as a child, I was very much worried about my mom. And looking back, like that preoccupation was a trauma based response too, but it felt the same as, as loss. It felt the same as missed as like my mom was a missing person and nobody would tell me 
how to find her. It felt the same to me, whether I, I, it was a trauma response or not. I mean, it's all relative. So unless you can kind of imagine, if you have a close relationship to your parents or something, an attachment to them, if you can imagine them doing the things that your child's biological parent did to them. Imagine if your mom was so drunk or fucked up on drugs that like she knocked you off the, knocked you off of, you know, your, your, your baby seat into a fireplace and you burned half your body and, and, you know, went to the hospital and she never came. Like, could you imagine the fucking pain that would cause you? The devastation that it would be every day in the hospital to not never see the face of your parent that, that was raising you? Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. You have to be able to put yourself in their shoes somewhat, you know, and, and understand, like, this is a traumatic, the situation in this, this example, you know, is so traumatic to be burned, have your body, all this stuff. But then to not ever see your dad again from the day of the trauma, the medical crisis, to now, you haven't seen your dad. And the only person that's speaking for him is a person that's yelling, seething, angry, that's making you feel guilty, that's shaming you, making you feel like a burden. You don't want to be there. You didn't want to be there in the first place. And now you're in trouble because you're being told that you're not grateful for being there, a place that you don't want to be. You don't want to be there. You know, that, that is a hard, hard, hard situation for a child. And like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say that all caregiving um, structures are like this. They're not. There's a lot of people out there who are raising children and they are trying all the time to reunify with the, with the biological parents. And maybe this isn't for you as much. Um, it is if you, in the off time, are speaking poorly of the parent, all, you know, and, and maybe even hoping that they fail, because that's another common thing I see. But, you know, we let our own attachments to ideas supersede our attachment to the truth. We let our own desire to have families and raise children and have these nuclear depictions of um, a family structure, we let that be the primary driving force in how we raise human beings in that structure. When you get that structure, you know, when you get the, the pieces to that puzzle and you think to yourself or you act out in your life that this puzzle only, this, this picture only looks good if we put the puzzle together in this way. And maybe, maybe, um, maybe you shouldn't put a puzzle together at all. Maybe you shouldn't, you should not be trying to, um, maybe you need to do the deep, the dig deeper and, re and really truly ask yourself what your motivations are. And I always say this, and I don't know that it resonates and I don't know how to make it resonate, but you have to really dig deep and figure out what is driving you into this situation. It is a very strange thing to be on the other side of and witness and talk to people who are so desperate for something that they, they cannot achieve in the natural or organic way. They are so desperate to have a family and to raise children that they do no good. They do no good to these children that they adopt and that they foster and that they bring into the home. They don't do what the system in place forgets to remind us is the duty of this job. If you are adopting a child from foster care, from the system, 
you have to understand this is not going to be your fucking solution to a nuclear biblical family. It is not. And it should never be projected to you that it will be. And if you are expecting that, you are too immature emotionally to adopt children, period. You cannot go into a situation where your motivation to build a family is, is trumping or, or trumps your, the reality of the child's needs and history and circumstance. If you think that you can go shopping in foster care for a baby or a child to complete your family, and that is even so much as a consideration, then please see yourself out, please. Because this is absolutely incorrect. It is, it should never be, it should never be that. It should be that you are a, you have a heart, a heart of that, that is driven by service, a heart that is generous of spirit um, in wanting to make sure that children have homes and they don't age out of care or whatever that you are taking in a child of another person, another person's child. They will always be another person's child. These will always be humans that belonged to other people. And that is okay. That's okay. But you have to change your expectations and integration. You have to accommodate the child's reality, the child's truth. Okay. You have to. And if you don't think in the, if you can't do that in the worst of circumstances, if this child is so angry, if this child is physically violent, if this child is rebellious, distracted by their biological parents' um, whereabouts, distracted by wanting to go and give it a shot as soon as they turn 18 years old, if you give them everything and they still leave before they finish their senior year of high school and they move three states away to go live with their mom in a trailer, you have to be consistently you. And if the you that is adopting a child is not the you that can still be supportive in those circumstances because you want a child to be integrated, behave as though she is your own, he or she is your own, that you want to raise them in your value system. And I don't know why my parents speaking. Okay. You want to raise them in your value system and anything outside of that will be rejected. And you want to, um, you have expectations of them as far as like how they're going to interact with their piece of shit parent who's such trash and who's on drugs and who couldn't get sober for them. If they still decide they want a relationship with that person and that's going to be hard and offensive and difficult for you and you can't orchestrate a, if you cannot facilitate or orchestrate a world in which <clears throat> that um, reality can be supported then you don't need to adopt them because the likelihood is very high that they are going to want to have a, some kind of a relationship with their parent, whether they're on drugs, whether they are still living with an abuser, or still living with a, uh, you know, a guy that like molested their daughter. Like they may still want a relationship with the mother and you can hate that and you can think it's crazy. You can raise them to understand that that is abuse and that that is not correct. And you can raise them to be um, more wise, you know, but what you can't do is you can't guarantee under any circumstances that anything that you do or teach them 
will interfere with their drive to want to know their biological family. You can't. That's just facts. Okay, so I was interrupted on my rant, which may be a good thing. Um, so I'm back. <laughs> and I'm trying to do a thing where I don't edit the podcast recording so that I can be more effective at getting them up and posted. Um, and so I'm just going to, I did go back and listen a little bit, but I, I'm not going to like edit like I normally would just edit it and then re-say into a transition what I was trying to say um, or finish. But essentially to wrap up my last point, what I was, what I was going in about is that if you're too emotionally immature to, um, forecast the types of, of issues that may cause you to feel triggered with a child that you have cared for, that is not grateful for that care because of their circumstances, which are mostly rational. And, and really, if you really let go of your bias and let go of your self-protection, like the, that self-interest um, that is a protective quality of, of our feelings, then you would understand that this child has exactly what you would want the child to have with you, with their biological parent. Like we all want our kids to like, you know, uh, have a loyalty to us and have a gratitude towards our sacrifice and have a, you know, a genuine desire to make sure we don't feel pain from their behavior. We all want that, but that's not a realistic or fair take. So like, if you don't have the ability or if you find yourself siding with people who feel like, um, you know, who, who spout off about, you know, they've sacrificed so much for these kids or this kid and they don't have any, um, you know, they don't care. They don't care all the things I've done and given up and I gave up my whole life for you and blah, blah, blah. Like that was your choice. And it's your choice always. It doesn't matter if it was a hard choice, an easy choice, a, 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 a um, an elective uh, journey that you were trying to make a family. It doesn't matter if your sister died in a car wreck and you had to take the kid because nobody else that's still your choice. You ultimately had the choice to say, I can't raise this child and put the child in the system. And it feels like there's not a choice, but the child shouldn't suffer because you couldn't do the hard things. Like, yes, they would have suffered more in foster care, undoubtedly. But if you can't get your shit together enough to understand the perspective of a child who is relinquished from their biological connection for whatever reason, and if you expect the child to be un un uh abashedly like gratitude filled so grateful and like obedient and loving towards you and just like a rescued animal like you do not need children from this uh structure because you are not going to be a good parent and that is a hard truth you need to ask yourself those questions and you need to ask yourself like um what what your reason what is your intention motivation your drive what is the driving factors here that are causing you to make this decision and what is your real capacity as a human to grow and evolve with a child that's growing through trauma and whatever else what is your uh, your capacity for um disappointment and rejection what is your capacity for abandonment from that perspective are you really capable of of doing this job. This is not an easy job. And like caregivers definitely need more information that is hard to take. And like going back to my point earlier about abortion, you know, um, there is a lot of controversy on the topic of abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, this and that. 
I'm not going to get into it because I have very strong beliefs about women's autonomy and whatnot. And that is probably controversial in this realm of my audience as well. The point I'm trying to make is that if you are pro-life, okay, and you believe that all children should be born instead of aborted, okay, that, that a fetus should be born, carried to term and born, and then adopted out instead of abortion, yet you also think that those children should be grateful that you that people adopt them instead of um, seeing it as an act of service that is complex, that is uh, has many facets of uh, self-sacrifice, that the child is going to undoubtedly have a traumatic experience, whether they're adopted from the womb or not that if you don't see those things as first indicators, if those aren't the first key points of your thoughts when considering these topics, you do not have the emotional intelligence or maturity to participate. And I'll say it again, you do not have the emotional capacity to do these jobs or to participate in these conversations because you're wrong, straight up, you're wrong. You are wrong to believe that a child adopted from the womb should just be able to integrate perfectly into a family without trauma, that they shouldn't, um, they should never really uh, seek out their, their biological family. You are wrong to think that they should integrate into your family without, flaw, you know, into their adoptive family flawlessly. You're wrong. And it's just proven over and over and over again. And like to say that these children on TikTok, for example, that are, that they should talk the adoptive families, the adoptive mothers, and that they are not grateful and that they're, you know, they're spewing hate. Like, yeah, that's all I've ever seen. I mean, I have given so much praise to foster families that I've seen who are constantly fighting for reunification. Um, There are some stories that have brought tears to my eyes that I have like just gushed over these people because, um, it's so fucking rare that reunification is a topic or is a concept that people truly understand and fight for as adoptive or foster families. So, and like, I don't, if you have to adopt a child because the parental rights have been terminated and that parent gets their shit together in five years and that kid is still interested in that, in that parent, or even if they're not, you having a relationship with that parent and you being prepared that your child will ask about them and want to know them. Like those are the things that, that build strong, well-adjusted children, you know, teaching your child that things happen in life, that parents are people. They're just, we're all just piece of shits out here trying to do our best. And like, nobody, nobody realizes, uh, as a child that the adults in their life are also looking for the adults. Like we don't all have it figured out. We make huge mistakes every day. I mean, in parenting, I think I make more mistakes parenting than I make in any other uh, aspect of my life because there's no one to really, no one knows your child better than you, it's, except for maybe their friends on occasion, um, you know, what they're up to and what they really think and feel. No one really knows this child better than you or should know this child better than you. And even still with that knowledge, you um, make poor decisions for them all the time when it's your job. And that's, that's ultimately how I feel as a person. Like you're, you're making the decisions for them on behalf of them when they're not ca- capable of making them themselves. But nobody really should be making decisions for other adults. You know what I'm saying? So, so 
when your child becomes an adult and you're still in control, like in my, my perspective with my child, like I still make a lot of choices for her because she was sheltered and because I'm a, a controlling person and I'm, I have my own hangups and fears and she um, holds space for that. But ultimately I know that power is dwindling and limited and I try to be fair with it and I try to, um, allow for her, I just try to have bumpers up and let her make mistakes. And we have a mutual agreement that that's, um, that works for us right now. If she changes that, I would probably have a hard time letting go of the control, but I would always have to remember that, um, supporting her is, is, um, is my job. And like, I would have to adapt as hard as it would be. So when you consider family building, and you consider adoption as this wonderful process, adoption allows for children to adjust into a new circumstance, a new environment with people that care about them. But it's never going to be a situation that is ideal. Ideal, idyllic lives do not involve adoption. And they don't, they, they don't. Like an idyllic upbringing um, is not one where your biological parent was a poor planner, was a drug addict, died in a car accident, is raped and you're born as a product of, of rape, or um, it's not idyllic to think that your uh, parent sold you for drugs or molested you, raped you themselves, and um, you had to be adopted, you know, fostered and then adopted or whatever. Nobody wants that. That is not in anybody's American dream, okay? Just like for parents, it's not ideal that you as a single person who wants to have a husband can't get a husband in time to have a natural um, conception and birth process. That's not what you dreamed of most likely. It is not ideal for a parent to not be able to conceive and eventually go to China and adopt a baby. Um, that is not ideal for anyone. And I don't care what anyone says, it's just not the way that people um, are designed and it's not the lives that most people, maybe there are exceptions, and that to me seems strange. The best thing that you can do as a normally developed person with a fully adult brain is to maybe seek some therapeutic intervention before you make these decisions. Most likely, if you're not already uh, a caregiver, you're not listening to this podcast, I assume. So if you already have done this and you're regretting it, what do you do? Like, what do you do moving forward? What if you have an eight-year-old that's like completely destroying your life? You're regretting this decision every day. You adopted them two years ago and things just took a turn for the worse. Now you're divorced. Maybe you're not divorced, but you're on your way to getting a divorce. Maybe DCF is in your life. They're not helping you and you don't know where to turn. You should maybe also seek therapy or some sort of coaching or self-help uh, to develop your emotional intelligence to develop your emotional maturity, to develop your individual understanding of the program that got you this child, your initial desires, what you thought, your expectations, you know what they were, and your awareness of what they are now, and then your reality. Like you need to process these things. And it, it's sometimes hard to do this when you're in constant crisis, which you might be for the next 10 to 12 years, depending on how old your child is. Like. It could get better. I have gone back to the group that kind of, uh, that I referenced before, the group that I started a while back. 
um, with my wife. And I've gone back to that group recently after taking a hiatus. And I've, I have talked to some of the OGs and they are all experiencing improvement or most of them are experiencing improvement with their relationship with these kids. Some of the years that you're going to go through are going to be the toughest years of your life. And you're going to look around and no one else is having that kind of experience. A lot of these cases, they turn out terribly where the child turns 18 and they do the dip and they never come home. They, they dip out to a different state. They end up living with boyfriends or friends. They end up on drugs. Like there's terrible takes, uh, terrible results in a lot of these stories. Like the end of these stories are never good. Not never good. In, in a lot of these cases, they never have a resolution that turns out to be an improved relationship, an improvement in their um, connection or bond or whatever. But there are tons that are. And I don't think I believed when I was in the darkest hours that there ever would be. And mine today, to date, is one of those. And I don't have all the answers. I, I like to think that I made the right decision when things got really terrible um, a couple years ago. And when I sent her to live with her dad, who was capable of taking care of her to some extent at that time, um, he was sober, you know, whatever. I've, I've spoke of this before. But whenever I look back, and I, I think I even have a podcast, uh, two parts possibly, that are in reference to my story, where I tell, I tell the whole story. Um, I need to update that because um, where I was at during that time, she had just left. It was a very dark time for me. I was really depressed. I was really like defeated. I didn't know, like she was ignoring me and I couldn't really control anything. She had a phone, but she wasn't using it. And like, I couldn't get in touch with her. I couldn't get a straight understanding of what was going on from her family um, down in, in her, in our hometown. And like, I, I just felt so, um, defeated and like telling that story was through that lens like how i told it at the time i need to go back and listen to it and update it with the different uh ongoing chapters you know because it changes so much and it changed in ways i didn't expect it to change and i don't know how much of that was just sending her there and her having those experiences or the decisions her dad made that were difficult for her to cope with that ultimately sent her back to me um but the child that i have now is not the child that I had at eight or 13 or whatever. Like she's just not the same person. And um, our relationship is one that is better than I could have ever planned for. And it's not perfect. It's not easy. It's not, um, she still does things that are infuriating, but more things that are infuriating in a way that are more akin to an expected experience when you have an 18 year old in college, you know, like, it's a different, it's a different set of problems. And I wasn't used to having normal problems, like the problems that my friends were having with their kids. I didn't have those same problems. You know, I had totally different, shocking, painful, uh, uh, no non-solvable, it felt at the time, problems. And, you know, the transition into that relationship is one I haven't really picked apart or unpacked completely. Um, I feel like I was always consistently the same, um, but I know I wasn't. I know I wasn't because my understanding and ability to be rational about her biological family um, is always evolving. I, I always uh, 
you know, you always like to look back on yourself. And I think that there's research that proves that we look back on ourselves more fondly than we probably are perceived by others. I do know that I made huge mistakes in the first part of her life because she didn't even know that I wasn't her biological mother for a long time. And the way she found out was traumatic. And the way that we, the way that we um, handled that, I guess, as a, as a unit, all of us, was absolutely terrible. It was the dumbest idea ever. I mean, I guess there are worse ways, but you know, how my relationship with her biological parents has, has existed over the years is weird. You know, like, uh, my boundaries with it was, have been weird. And my being manipulated was, um, part of that and being probably manipulative was part of that, but also my, you know, so I know that I have evolved because for example, I have a lot of reasons to hate her mother, her biological mother. And I do not, um, I, tr trust and believe me when I tell you that that person is a person that the vast majority of people would never forgive, could not forgive, would never want to hold space for. And I have done that and um, even initiated that. And she still has failed, me as well as my child. But um, I do recognize that she's just a person with a shitty uh, past and I don't give her I don't give her too much, um, I don't, I hold too, I probably hold more space than is necessary for her to, um, her to own that whenever she's ready, I guess, and um, facilitate whatever that looks like at whatever point in time it needs to be facilitated. And I, I have accepted that that, I, I had a sense of urgency about it for a while because I wanted to get past it because I knew it was gonna be difficult for everybody, but I, so I tried on several occasions to, to look at that and formulate a way to um, start that, that, that process. And to my actual benefit, I assume, um, to my benefit and maybe to my child's benefit, um, we were not able to coordinate those efforts in a way that was meaningful for my child. So I am now no longer trying to expedite or coordinate that I am, I have, you know, taking a, a major step back from even considering or thinking about it. And I think that when the time is right, hopefully, hopefully that comes before she ends up in, in the, in the ground, um, that we will all make the right decisions and I will be able to facilitate that in a way that is easiest for my child to experience process and understand. And I try to do that. Uh, I try to update my, my thinking about it whenever, it comes up. If it comes up for me, I'm triggered by something and it comes up for me. I try to really think about it in a thorough, fair, uh, mature and rational way. And I try to talk about it in the same kind of structure. Um, and it's a complex situation. Um, same with her dad. I mean, that's a weird one for me because we were good friends. We're, I, I still consider him a friend. I just don't know that it's a one-sided friendship, if you will, you know, because he is constantly um, growing his life, growing within his life and building his family. And that doesn't always include my child in the capacity that I think is correct or fair, or she's not considered in the ways in which I would like for her to be considered. And I'm always the one to deal with 
the uh, repercussions of that, of his decisions and be them small or large. So for me, it's very, it's a complex um, dynamic there as well, but it's one that I stay participatory in to some level because um, she doesn't have the skill set to deal with the disappointment from him still, even though we've done all the things. So her mental health is, is very much impacted by what her dad does. And I don't have any control over that. And I don't have any real um, solution for that. And I don't think there, nobody really does. Like she has to do the work to accept and manage that relationship and accept her own um, expectations. And I have to do, I have to do the, the work to be supportive and fair and give guidance that is fair to both his real, the reality of the situation, the rationale of, of her mental, uh, the rationale of her mental health and her expectations. And I just have to be kind of like a neutral participant that is, that leans, uh, like I'm like a moderate that leans more towards her side. You know what I'm saying? So I try to be unbiased and fair and whatever, but I do mitigate that relationship less than I ever have, even though I still mitigate it more than I probably need to or want to. Um, So, you know, when you have the unique perspective of living with these children every day, and you have the unique perspective of the outrage that you feel when they miss, um, inform other people about your care or, or the outrage that you feel when they are not grateful, when they are not, um, when they're lying in a direct way that assaults your character, your family, your other children, when they are physically demanding, abusive, um, they cause chaos in your life, they cause chaos in your home, they cause chaos in your own mental health, they cause chaos in your job. When they are the, um, they, they are the terrorists of chaos in your life. <laughs> and I hate to use that word in a, like, in, in its full capacity, but I mean, it feels that way. It feels like you have been occupied by terrorists when they are literally wreaking havoc in every aspect of your, of your, uh, of your socioeconomic, your, um, you know, all of the hierarchies of our needs are being impacted by the children, the children that you have chosen or birthed or whatever, and you are not getting or able to really even give anything back to this child in a developmental way, because the, the havoc and the chaos is so intense and the fear and the disappointment is just, it's just wrecking your life. All the shit I'm saying right now doesn't matter. And I know that because it doesn't seem like it's for your audience. It doesn't feel like it's meant for you. The content doesn't feel like it impacts you or is about you or reflects back to you your own circumstance. But as a person who was in your position, these conversations, talking about mitigating relationships with biological parents, um, these are your conversations. These are things you need to hear because essentially um, you're going to come through this season and it doesn't mean you're going to be met with a new, beautiful, like easier season. It could still be a really rough winter next season, just a different winter next season. You're going to get through this one and it'll be a new one. And I can't give you any tips on how to make it the best one ever, except for you. All I can tell you about is you. I can tell you how you can improve your experience, which is to grow your mind, to listen to content that is not rhetoric in the way of uh, this uh, autonomous, independent, um, um, 
you know, the mantras of, of, of conservative values don't necessarily line up with the reality of your life. That's what I'm trying to say. If I'm being direct, like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, mantra about the biological parents who aren't paying child support, who aren't um, contributing in any meaningful way. They don't make their appointments. They didn't go to parenting classes, blah, 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 blah. Like looking at them, like they are failures. They are fucking pieces of shit. They're, they're terrible parents. They're fucking, they don't deserve to see their kids. Meanwhile, that same child is like causing the same amount of disappointment on the other side. And if you think for a second that your take on that is not impacting both parties and both um, both situations and most importantly, negatively impacting you, you're wrong. You have to understand that each individual human being on this planet has a complex set of factors that cause and drive their behavior. That means yourself, the child and their parents. And if they are letting the child down on one side, and the system is letting them down or their own parents let them down on the other side. And you have this generational, um, you know, just nightmare of human beings that are generationally tra traumatized. Uh, they are, you know, what you feel like is lazy, not accountable for their own behavior, not independent, not hardworking, not, um, you know, responsible, whatever. You have to reframe some of that and give space for the reality that these things don't happen by choice that these things don't happen um, by preference and that these things don't happen, uh, they're not mutually exclusive, okay? So like if your parent, if the parent of your child is one that lost their parental rights because of drug abuse um, and you feel like they're a lazy piece of shit that chooses to stay high instead of be a parent, that is going to drive a constant feeling of, expectation of gratitude, of expectation of change, of expectation of uh, um, recognition. And it's also going to maybe influence your ability to have appropriate conversations with your child about their parent. You don't have to go out of your way to lie to them about their parent. As a matter of fact, I would recommend at a certain age, you start doing the opposite. And you, without seething, hateful, um, you know, vernacular, using your big girl words and emotions, you can tell them the truth about their parent and not in a way that is um, biased to, to hold with, you know, hold up your, your, your internal rhetoric about, you know, I saved you from the slums and I saved you from this, from the streets, but you can say like, Hey, your parent is homeless. Like, okay. Um, mom and dad are homeless. They're both on heroin or fentanyl or whatever. And that, you know, they're still, they're still in the, they are still in the grips of their drug addiction. And that is why they're not showing up for you because that's the truth. They're not showing up for you because they are ravaged by drugs and addiction. And it's not that they don't want to be better. It's not that they don't want to parent you, miss you, think of you, love you. It is that they have basically um, been, they're in a stranglehold and their captor is not letting them go to do the things. And they don't have the strength to overcome it yet on their own. And we can only hope, maybe you pray, you can say pray. We can only hope and pray that they find the resources or the strength to overcome this in a meaningful way soon. And I hope the same thing for you. I want them to get better. I want them to show up for you. And I'm sorry that they, they can't. 
it's not because of you. And it's not, it's, it's okay that that is enraging and it's okay that you feel uh, rejected and left behind because that's a normal feeling. When a parent chooses, when a parent, when they, so what we always say is when a parent chooses drugs over their child, they're not choosing drugs over their child. And we have to stop saying that. That is not the facts. Their life becomes, unman- uh, to, to, to take a line from AA, their life becomes unmanageable at a certain point. And without the tools and resources to manage it or help managing it, the likelihood that they will just snap out of it one day and make a choice to go to McDonald's and be a cashier over shooting up drugs in the streets, it's a, it's a implausibly immature and uh, ignorant take on the truth of, of drug addiction. And we're telling children this and they believe it. And they believe that their, child, that their parent wakes up from their position of being homeless in our society in a freezing cold winter so strung out on drugs that they are literally shitting their brains out, puking, they have the chills, they have all of these very uh, terrible, hard to manage symptoms. And there is one solution. And that child is not part of that thought process because they are not part of that solution. They are so um, driven by the brain response to drug addiction that all they want to do is get better. And, you know, get well is a lot of the time what you'll hear in the drug community. Like, get well, I need to get well. Getting well is exactly what that feels like. And if you've never experienced that, and you don't know what it feels like to have the worst illness of your life, that a guy down the road with a $5, $10, $20 bag um, can, can greatly, like, he is the doctor of the day. You don't have the capacity to understand the neurological response to this experience is like having a um, mind control over the drug has mind control over this person. And there are physical symptoms um, that are uh, aligned with the mind control. So like, not only is your brain telling you, you have to have this drug, your body knows that you will feel better and you will be able to walk and sleep and take a dump and do all the things if you just go to this street doctor who gives you some medication and you will feel alive again, you will feel regular again. And when you're homeless, you don't have a job. You can't, not like these are all functioning addicts. Some of these addicts are like deeply, deeply into the drug life. Okay. And like, they don't have the ability to wake up and make a choice between live this type of life and live that type of life, especially when they're homeless, especially when they're in uh, their, their home is at, they're at risk. Um, home or whatever. Like you have to just be more realistic with yourself about what you're saying to these children and what their capacity to understand the actual words that you're using to define their parent situation. To say they choose drugs over you is not accurate. It's not an accurate thing to say. And like you are developmentally stunted yourself. If you still believe that after all of this time, after all of the proof that you've seen in the world that people make what you consider to be the craziest decisions, the most extreme decisions, like to choose homelessness and drugs over your home or to choose, um, you know, you have a career and you're choosing drugs over your career, over your child. Like nobody, nobody would choose to be a homeless drug addict over having a home having their child, having money coming in every week, paying their bills, 
Like nobody wants to live like that, where they can't shower, where they're being raped, or there's a fear or concern that they might be raped. There is a fear or a concern that they might be um, physically assaulted, that they're being robbed, that they're having to beg people that treat them like shit for money, that they're having to steal shit and sell it on the streets. Nobody would choose that life. It is a driven, brain chemically driven response that, that you need to do some research about before you tell these children these horrible things that they will, they will take as truth. They will believe that their, that their parent would rather be homeless, dirty, hungry, covered in wounds, um, all of this, than be with their child. You, you make them believe these things. They, they actually believe these things. And that's crazy. That in and of itself is crazy. Because why would you want your child to think that anyway? Even if it was true, why would you want a child to believe that somebody in their life who was supposed to love them, who asked for them, who chose to have them, whatever, would, would make that decision? Why would you want them to believe that, even if that's true? Which is, it just simply isn't. 